Well, last week we had uh, the joy of starting to look at this important section of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, as Jesus deals with the difficult subject of our relationship to the Old Testament, our relationship to the law. And this is a real struggle for a lot of Christians as they try to navigate understanding God's will. They try to navigate how the Lord would have them understand the Old Testament, what obligations they may have to it, what are their responsibilities, what portions of the law they ought to obey and which they are not obligated to. And their confusion is compounded as the believer reads in the Old Testament about various writers who love the law of God. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, 127. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Or verse 10. More to be desired are they, that is your commandments, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Or Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And people read those passages of Scripture and they ask themselves uh, the legitimate question, Do I love the law of God the way that these Old Testament writers love the law of God? Am I supposed to love the law of God and meditate on the law of God the same way that they loved God's law and meditated on God's law? And what would they have loved about it? Why did they love it? And if I don't have that same kind of love, why is it not there? They they read these passages and they ask their que- the, the questions about God's law in that kind of a way. How do these verses apply? Or do they apply? And if these men love the law so much and medita- meditated on it so much, why is it that I hear from some Christians that the law is a problem? Why is it that I hear from some people that the law is something that I ought to be separating myself from? Why is it that people seem to have such a, a problem with the law? Why is it not a delight for all of us? Well, to begin with, we could say that there's a certain danger when you begin these kinds of reflections and these kinds of discussions, there's a certain kind of a danger whenever you narrow your discussion to simply the contents of the law. Which parts of the law might be applicable, which parts might not be applicable. Because to understand the law, you have to begin by framing it in the bigger storyline of the Old Testament. In other words, to understand the law, the place to begin is not with the individual pieces of its content, but the place to begin is with its overall function. The function and the role of the law 
really fits within a broader storyline, a storyline of intransigent, rebellious humanity or rebellious sinners and a God who is full of grace and abundant mercy. And to properly understand the law, you have to understand that storyline and how the law fits into that storyline. Men and women were rebellious, of course, from the Garden of Eden. Continued on for centuries. It was there when the law was given and it's there even down to our own day. There was sort of a recalcitrance against God and against His authority. And throughout this time, even all the way back to the garden itself, God promised His grace and mercy. He promised redemption. Redemption not only from the penalties of sin, but redemption from the corruption in this world. And God committed Himself to that through various promises. Eventually, even clarifying that commitment in covenants that He made, for example, with Abraham. But He never really explained or began to explain it and how it would be accomplished, he just promised it. But he didn't begin to explain it and how it's accomplished until he gave the law. And the law began to put into place a plan for how God would redeem sinners. But it was only a plan. It was only a framework, or as, as Paul describes it in Colossians, it was only a shadow of a full scoped outcome that was to unfold in the future. Now, this is the way that you see New Testament writers speaking about the Old Testament and speaking about particularly elements of the law. For example, the writer of Hebrews, as he begins to uh, deal with these issues, and, and he's writing with an overall purpose to show that Christ is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament. He's better than the priesthood. He's better because he offers a better covenant than the old covenant. He came to bring a new covenant. And and in explaining all that, the writer of Hebrews explains how this works itself out, particularly through some of these issues like the priesthood and the sacrifices. And while he doesn't focus so much on the individual sacrifices themselves, each uh, sort of division of those sacrifices, he focuses on the overall functioning of how the sacrifices work and how the priesthood worked and how the temple worked. The overall functioning of the law, primarily on its weaknesses and its inabilities on its faultiness, you might say, its overall inability to make the person who follows it into a better person, to make them, in his words, into a perfect person. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, he says, quote, if, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. End quote. What he's talking about is all of those weaknesses and all those inabilities under the old covenant. And there was implied, he says, through the system itself, through the functioning itself, there was an implied need 
for something else. There was an implied need for a greater covenant. Because in that old covenant, it shows itself defective because the moment that you offer a sacrifice, you need another sacrifice because the sinning goes on. And even the person who's offering the sacrifice on behalf of others needs a sacrifice for himself because he has his own sins. And so for all of these reasons, he says that there was an implied need for another covenant, for a a new plan. In fact, in Hebrews 8, verse 5, he says that these priests were serving a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. And in chapter 9, verse 23, he speaks about how it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these certain rituals. That is, the sacrifices of the blood of bulls and goats and all of that stuff. So he's saying that there was this covenant and it was in place, but it was just simply a a copy. It was just simply a sort of a shadow of something to come. It was a, a model. It provided a plan But it never provided the completed product. It always pointed to the need for something else. In fact, the word they use there in Hebrews 9.23 is the word hupodegma. It's it's a word for model or could even be a word for an outline or a sketch of something. So, So all of this that was taking place in the Old Testament was just simply modeling something or sketching something out on a piece of paper, but it wasn't the full constructed thing. It was just sort of the outline of what it might look like. And it functioned that way. It functioned by way of a model and a design. But it all implied the need for a completed product. Now... That completed product comes in the new covenant. In fact, he says at the end of Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8.13, he says, And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So he talks about this transition because of the way the old covenant functioned, the way the old covenant operated, and its inabilities and its weaknesses. He talked about the need for a new kind of of covenant. Now here's the key as you're understanding this. In both systems, whether it's the old covenant or the new covenant, in both systems you have all the same basic elements. The difference is one of them was weak and ineffective and one of them is powerful and effective. You have all the same elements. In both of them, there are sacrifices. In both of them, there are priesthoods. In both of them, there is a temple of sorts, as the writer of Hebrews explains. You have all the same basic elements. Both of them, there is uh, discussions of righteousness. All of those things are still there in both components, but the key difference is in the way that they function. One of them simply provided an outline. One of them simply provided kind of a, a, a sketch. And one of them provided the completed, the completed product. Now, we started to see this last week whenever we were here in the book of Matthew and discussing Jesus' words as it relates to the law and the prophets in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. And we noted 
how he himself gave strong endorsement of the validity of the Old Testament in terms of what it was meant to do. And and we can just begin by reading again from these verses what Jesus says in verse 17. Do not think, he says, that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's Jesus talking about his perspective on the Old Testament, his perspective on the law, and his understanding of its relationship to us as believers. And this is broken down essentially into these two parts. The first part dealing with his relationship to the law. We looked at it last week. We we called it Christ and the law in verses 17 and 18. Or we might call it Christ and the Old Testament because Jesus is talking about the law and the prophets. And his basic message is sort of negative and positive. On the negative side, he said, don't think that I came to abolish any of this stuff. Don't think that I came to separate you from the Old Testament. Don't think that I came to do away with any of that. Don't even let that enter your mind, he says. Apparently that was what some people thought about Jesus. That is some of the ways that they were trying to interpret his ministry, not only back then, but even till today. People read uh, the words of Jesus and they misunderstand what he's saying and they think that he's trying to separate them from the Old Testament. Jesus says, absolutely not true. Don't even think that I've come to do that. That's what he says on the negative side. On the positive side, he says, I haven't come to abolish them but I've come to fulfill them. Or he says in the next verse, not one iota, not a dot will pass away until all is accomplished. Those two phrases basically mean the same thing. To fulfill is essentially to accomplish. The word is not being used by Jesus here in terms of prophecies, that is predicting future events in detail, which then are are coming to pass or being fulfilled. And that's that way he's using it much like you find it in Paul or in James. He's using it in the sense of completion. And Jesus is saying that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant had a design that was left unfulfilled. It had a design that was left unaccomplished, a design that needed to be completed and the work that was intended to be accomplished by the law and the prophets will be accomplished through me and through the new covenant that I'm bringing. And so just like the writer of Hebrews, he spoke about the Old Testament in terms of these models or in terms of these outlines or in terms of these designs. And those designs could not be fulfilled under the law. They could not be fulfilled under the old covenant. They demanded, they needed a new covenant. And Jesus tells us that he didn't come, therefore, to do away with those designs. He didn't come to do away with those models. 
He came to complete them. He came to accomplish them. He didn't come to abolish what the Old Testament was designed for. He didn't come to abolish what the law was designed for. He came to complete the design. Now, this, of course, has implications for you and I, and Jesus turns to that in verses 19 and 20. If you're not getting rid of the Old Testament, if you're not getting rid of the law and the prophets, what does that mean for you and me? Well, Jesus begins to cover that in verse 19. He says uh, that this Old Testament works itself out in our lives in particularly applicable ways. And we could ask ourselves maybe to understand those ways. We could ask ourselves a basic question. What was the design of the Old Testament in the first place? You say that Jesus understood the Old Testament as a design that He is fulfilling or a design that He is accomplishing. Well, what was the design? And how is he going to accomplish it? That's really the right questions. What was the design of the Old Testament? What was the design of the commandments? Because this is where Jesus turns his focus. The Christian and the commandments. The Christian and the law. Verse 19, Therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that he didn't come to do away with any of this stuff. He came to fulfill it. He understood its design and he understood that it needed to be accomplished. And he wants you to understand that as well. And you ask, well, what is that design? Well, in a simple statement, you could say the design of the law was first of all to help you see your need. It was to help you see your need for a new covenant. The design of the old covenant was so that you could understand the necessity of a new covenant. The design of the law was to help you understand the need for the work of Christ. It was to help you see your utter rebellion. It was to help you see your total inability to do anything about it. It was all there so that you could understand why you desperately need the work that Christ came to provide. The sketch was so that you could see your need for the completed product. It's a little bit like your nervous system in your body. It registers and communicates pain. It doesn't stop the pain. In fact, it doesn't even cause the pain. It doesn't heal you from whatever is causing the pain. It doesn't do any of that. All it simply does is register your pain when you're doing something that's hurting you. Well, God's law registers your pain, or more specifically, it registers your sin. It registers your rebellion. It gives you a mirror so that you can see more clearly what is the condition of your life and your heart. 
And the Bible speaks about this in a number of ways. Galatians 3.19, Paul states the question, why the law? Why the law? It was added, he says, because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So it was given in the time before the promise, that is the, the, the promise of Christ. It was given because of sin, because of transgression. It was added because without it, the full scope of your need, the full scope of your sin would not have been evident to you. He says in verse 21, you ask a second question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? We're in the era of the promises. The promises have arrived. So therefore, is the law contrary to all that? Is it something that works against this new era that we're in? Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Paul says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everyone under sin, that, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The Scripture, or we might say the law imprisoned everyone under sin. Not that the law itself imprisoned you. It's not as if humanity was free and then the law came in and suddenly they were locked up. The law just helped you to realize the prison that you're in. It's as if you're groping around in a courtyard, mingling with all your friends, and then the law comes in and turns on the light, and you realize that you're surrounded by fences and razor wire. You were in prison, you just didn't know it. Imprisoned by your sin, imprisoned by your, by your corruption. And the law comes in, and it helps you to see this prison. It's the same thing Paul says in Romans 5.13. He said, sin was indeed in the world before the law. It was already there. But sin is not counted where there is no law. What does he mean? He says people were facing the penalty of sin. In fact, he, he gives that in Romans 5. The whole context is one of the primary penalties of sin, which is death. And he explains that death was there. People were suffering the penalty for sin. They were, they were being judged for sin. There were things that were happening, not just death, but they were facing the consequences of their actions, the consequences of their attitudes. They were feeling all the shame and the guilt and the anxiety and the turmoil in their hearts. They were experiencing all of these things. Sin was there and the consequences were there, but it wasn't counted or it wasn't accounted or it wasn't recognized when there was no law, why these things were happening. They didn't understand. They had sin. They had consciences even that were bothered, just like your conscience is bothered. You're afflicted. You're, you're, as I said, you're sort of torn up with anxiety inside. You're churning inside. And you don't always understand why you feel the way that you feel. You feel this sort of darkness and you feel this sort of dread and it sort of weighs on you morning after morning and night after night and you look for ways to escape it and it's all right there and your conscience is afflicting you and bothering you but just not recognized for what it is and then the law comes in and you recognize 
that you're actually breaking the law. In other words, sin was there. It might have been morally recognized, but it wasn't legally counted. It wasn't being recognized as a violation of some law. Tom Schreiner says it this way. He says, quote, sin was present just like heat and cold are present where we do not have a thermometer. But one could not, in a sense, measure sin before the giving of the law. End quote. So people had this sin. They had this corruption. They had this shame. They had this guilt. They had this anxiety inside of them. They had all of that stuff, but they didn't realize where it was all coming from because they didn't realize how they were violating God's righteousness. Well, the law enters and they begin to see. They begin to see where all of the magnitude of their sin is weighing against them. They had a law they could much easily measure themselves against it and register to themselves by it. Later on, Paul will say in Romans 7, What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Do you hear what Paul's saying there? He says, the law is not the problem. The law is not sinful. The law, as he goes on to say, is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The the laws and the commandments are not the problem. The problem is you. And the law helps you to see that. It helps you to clarify that. You might have an issue like coveting. You might look around and see what everyone else has and begin to think that you ought to have it, that it ought to be yours. And you might tell yourself that's just natural. That's just the way the world works. And you're longing and you're desiring for what your neighbor has in all of these things. And it's creating in you a kind of discontentment. And the discontentment is churning in your heart. And it's making you uh, anxious. And it's making you uh, sort of recoil or or despair, or whatever it might be, and then in turn, it makes you, it makes you sort of uh, uh, want to attack other people around you. It makes you bitter towards people around you. You begin to, to blame other people who are cutting you off and denying you from the things that you feel like you ought to have, the things that other people have. And all that stuff, you don't realize that it's sin, And then the law comes in and says, you shall not covet. You realize where all of this darkness and all of this anxiety and all of this shame and all this guilt and all this anger, you realize where all this stuff is coming from because the law has brought the thermometer and you see the magnitude of how far your sin has gone. Now when that happens, you're not to be angry at the law. The law didn't do anything bad. 
In fact, the law did something good. When a doctor comes in and he gives you a diagnosis about some sort of terminal illness, you're grateful to the doctor because now that you know the problem, you can try to treat the problem. And you're, you're blessed by all of his instruments and all of his scans and all of his tools. When he brings you the diagnosis, you don't get angry at the MRI machine. You don't get angry at the microscope and, and say somehow that's the problem. No, you understand that those things are a blessing. And so the law is a grace. It's an instrument for clarifying what the problems are. Now, when you grasp all that, you begin to understand the design. This was part of the design of the Old Covenant, the design of the law. It provided a kind of a sketch, a kind of a model by which you can compare yourself to the model and the design and you can see where you fail or where you have flaws or imperfections or weaknesses or rebellion. And so the law gives you a better understanding of who you are. Therefore, the law is not something bad. It's not something to be done away with. The law is good. It shows you things about yourself that are important to know. What was bad and what is bad is what's in your heart. And the law gives you a chance to see all of that. It shows you the design and it shows you all the ways you do not fit the design. And then the prophets come along and they reinforce all that by expounding the law and applying the law and helping you to understand that even more. How that works itself out in different eras and in different places as society progressed in Israel. And after the law was given, the Jews lived for centuries underneath the authority of that law, and it removed all questions about their spiritual condition. It removed all questions about their ability to comply. It it gave all the evidence that was necessary, whereas they might have initially believed that they could sort of uh, um, build the, the, the model that was given to them. They might be able to fill in the outline of what was put there, The law came along and helped them to understand that it didn't matter what their political situation was, what their economic situation was. It didn't matter whether they had a good king or a bad king, whether they had enemies that were threatening them or they had times of peace. It didn't matter whether their priesthood was corrupt or uncorrupt. It didn't matter whether they had a tabernacle or a temple. None of it really mattered because in all situations and in all times, they were equally rebellious. They were equally incapable of fulfilling the design that was given to them. And what they needed was much more than just simply a law, a set of rules to follow. What they needed was a brand new self, a brand new heart that would be able to comply with the law. And this was not an afterthought. This wasn't something that that God realized halfway through. In fact, when He gave the law, He told them that this is exactly what you're going to learn from the law. Over in Deuteronomy, when Moses was giving the law in Deuteronomy 30, this is what He said to them. He told them that they were going to have this law and have all of its 
blessings and then eventually it's curses because of their disobedience. He says, when all these things come upon you, Deuteronomy 31, 30, 30 verse 1, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice and all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore you fortunes and have mercy on you. And He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you are outcast or in the uttermost parts of the heaven, he says, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he'll make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul so that you may live. You see, God gave the law with the intent and with the understanding that Israel would fail to keep the law and see how desperately they needed new hearts, circumcised hearts, as he says there. Much later in Jeremiah 31, he promises a new covenant. In verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand and brought them up out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. So you begin to get a picture of the way the law was functioning. You begin to get a picture of of the, the design. The law pointed to it. The law outlined it. But the law had no power to produce it. The law could define the way that sin needed to be dealt with. It could give pictures of how a sacrifice might pay for sins. It could could explain through all of those sacrifices the need for a substitute or a substitutionary role for a sacrifice, but it could never provide an adequate sacrifice. It could never provide a worthy substitute. And the law could define how a righteous person ought to live But ultimately, it couldn't produce the righteousness within you. It could outline the design of what a righteous person should look like, but it could never produce that righteousness. Now, Jesus comes along, and He's saying to us, I didn't come to get rid of that design. Why would I come to get rid of that design and that plan? I didn't come to get rid of the plan that was laid out for us through the law and through the Old Testament. I actually came to accomplish it. Why in the world would I want to get rid of it? The law isn't sin. The law isn't bad. Why would I want to abolish the Old Testament? Why would I want to separate you from that design, he says? 
The law isn't contrary to the promise, as Paul said in Galatians. It's preparatory. It's preparatory to understand the promise. It helps you to understand what was promised and how it will be accomplished. So why would you get rid of that? Now you go back to Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus declares, not one jot and not one dot will pass away from this law until all is accomplished. And therefore, he draws a conclusion, verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Or another way to say that is anyone who distorts this sketch, anyone who, who manipulates this model, anyone who tries to, to reduce or release, or excuse me, or relax one of the least of these commandments, anyone who tries to undo any of that, anyone who tries to do away with the Old Testament is undermining the overall plan of God. The Old Testament was there to help you and I understand what God promised, what needed to happen, and the way He accomplishes it. And what Jesus is saying is that cannot happen apart from the law. It cannot happen apart from the law. I came, he says, to fulfill all that stuff. I came to accomplish. And he gets there in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that? He means that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was a righteousness that was just still barely an outline. All it was was a picture on a piece of paper. But it wasn't a fully constructed product. They might have had the blueprints, but they never built any true Righteousness. As a matter of fact, even their blueprint had been distorted and messed up, as Jesus will go on to say in verses 21 and following. You've heard that it's said, but I say to you, he'll even go on to say how they've even tried to redesign. They've even tried to change the outline. Instead of an outline of what righteousness looks like, they tried to redraw the picture to look like them. So the righteousness was redefined to look like them. But in reality, they were stuck in the same place the Jews were stuck in in the Old Testament. They could read the law, they could read about righteousness, but they still could not live it from the inside out because they hadn't placed their faith in Jesus. Now, getting that in your mind, the function, is important. Helping you understand where the law fits into that overall storyline of recalcitrant and rebellious sinners is critical to then understand Jesus' instruction here. Because he's telling you that not only is he going to fulfill everything that the law was intended to accomplish, he's telling you 
that you can't relax any of these commandments. Not only do you have to do them, he says you need to teach them. Now, you might be trying to reconcile that in your mind. You say, well, yeah, I mean, I see Jesus saying that, but there's so many places in the Old Testament where it says we're not under the law. Galatians 5, if you're led by the Spirit, verse 18, you're not under the law. Romans 6.14, you're not under law, but under grace. Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 8, 13, in speaking about a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is ready, excuse me, is growing old and ready to vanish away. So if the New Testament speaks so negatively about the law, why is Jesus affirming it so strongly here? Well, again, you have to start by understanding the way it functions. Because when the Bible speaks about the law, most of the time it's speaking about it in the singular, unified fashion. In other words, it doesn't often speak about the law in terms of the laws or the commandments, plural, but the law as a totality. Or another way to say that, it spoke about the law in the sense of the law covenant, which was the whole basis of how you approach God, a whole system about how you relate to God, about the way that you establish and maintain your relationship to God. It was an arrangement. It was, we might say, a covenant. It was a covenant certainly that included commandments, but its basic function was as a law covenant. And when the New Testament talks about the law, singular, being done away, this is its focus. Its focus is on this law arrangement that is no longer authoritative in that sense of a covenant. The function of a model is necessary until you have the completed product, right? So the New Testament talks about us no longer being under the law. This is primarily what it's referring to. It's primarily referring to the fact that the law covenant, the law arrangement has been abolished. You no longer relate to God through that old system. That old covenant, that Mosaic covenant has been replaced by something called the new covenant. And the new covenant is an arrangement that was established by Jesus Christ. It was an arrangement that was ratified, it was, it was sort of put into place and made operative by the cross. By Jesus sacrificing himself, he paid the penalty for every failure that you would ever have to keep any of God's commandments. He paid the penalty uh, uh, under God's wrath for everything for which you were guilty. And he so completely removed the whole issue of not keeping the law and not living up to the standard. And so much of the Old Testament was related to just that. What do you do when you fail to keep the commandments of the law? He removed all that stuff in terms of your relationship to God. Now you relate to God through believing in Jesus Christ, believing in His sacrifice and believing in His resurrection. That's how you approach Him. 
Not through keeping the commandments, but through trust in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. Now, because of all that, the law covenant has been replaced. But listen, the laws, the commandments are still there. The law covenant, the law arrangement has been removed, but the laws are still there. This is why Jesus says you can't dispense with teaching others because Someone comes along and begins to teach you to ignore the law, ignore the Old Testament. They're leading you down a dangerous pathway because this law covenant and this law arrangement is gone, but the law is still there. Not as a dominion over your life in the sense of binding and necessary things that you have to do in order to have a relationship with God, but you can have a relationship with God Through faith in Jesus Christ. The law, therefore, is not there as dominion, but it remains as direction. In other words, it still provides kind of an outline. It still provides a model that you can look at and you can reflect on to understand what is the design. God is producing the product now through the new covenant God is accomplishing all of these things. Now, what is he trying to accomplish? And you look into the law and it tells you that. Listen to the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, To the Jew I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Now I'm under this new arrangement. That law of Christ is now the new arrangement, but it doesn't put me outside the law of God. I'm still within the law of God, but now under the arrangement that operates through Jesus Christ. Meaning I deal with the law not as someone whose relationship with God is threatened by my failure in keeping the law, but I'm under the law of Christ, which means that the law no longer has dominion over me, but it still provides me with direction. This is why you see Paul and you see others saying we're no longer under the law. And then he turns around whether it's the book of Galatians, whether it's other places, he turns around and actually quotes from the law. He quotes from the Old Testament. In fact, he does it over and over again. He quotes from the Torah because he understood that these things were there to help us understand what righteousness looks like. Whether it's telling children in Ephesians 6 that they need to honor their father and mother, which is a commandment that comes with a promise. Or whether it's 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, where he quotes the Old Testament law about the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And Paul's not particularly saying that because he believed that all of his readers had oxen or were were treading grain every day. In fact, he understands that's not the way the law operates anymore But it's there in order to give you important understandings of how righteousness works. In fact, he doesn't apply it to oxen at all. He's 
using it as a, as a, a tool to teach the church how they should financially support ministers. So this is the way the law is now being used. It's no longer acting as dominion, but it's something that now gives direction. Why would you want to get rid of that? If this was the design, if this was the outline, if this was the paradigm and the model, why in the world would you want to abolish that? Why would you want to rip it out of your notebook, the sketch that God had made, and crumble it up and throw it away? Why? Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish any of that. I came to fulfill it. And how are you going to understand how he fulfills it unless you understand the design? Another way to say this is the law teaches these patterns, these designs, these outlines of what righteousness looks like. And then God is working it in our heart to flesh that out in the final product. And I need to read and I need to reflect on those designs. I need to study those outlines. I need to understand in the context of of Jewish life or whatever, what righteousness looked like. Because while the laws themselves are not always necessary under this new law apparatus and or we might say more appropriately, they have so many ways been fulfilled through Christ priesthood and Christ sacrifice and all of those other things. While some of them may not be directly applicable, all of them are necessary for me to understand who I am, what my need is, what Christ has done for me, and how He would have me to live. So Jesus says, I don't want to do away with that. And you shouldn't do away with that. You shouldn't relax any of that outline. You shouldn't distort any of that sketch. You shouldn't relax any of those commandments. And you shouldn't teach others to do, the, to do that either. What you need to do is you need to read and reflect and understand how that law was functioning, what it was pointing to. It was pointing to a promise, a need and a promise. And then Jesus is saying, I, I came to fulfill everything that the law pointed to. I came to fulfill everything that it promised. A new covenant with the law written on our hearts so that we can obey. Now, when you grasp all of that, when you grasp the function of the law, the place of the law, the purposes of the law, then you can begin to understand where the Scripture speaks about the law in these ways. Matthew 22, Jesus says, the whole law and the prophets are fulfilled in two commandments. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James chapter uh, 2, the royal law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Because whether it was Jesus or Paul or James, they understood that the law had a purpose. It was giving you an outline. And that outline was intended to produce, or excuse me, that outline was intended to point to a final product that God would produce. And that final product is summarized in those two great commandments. You understand how they work themselves out, not only by looking at the life of Christ, but you understand how they work themselves out by understanding what God was calling Israel to in the Old Testament. Now, that is sort of a high-level sketch, a high-level, I should say, understanding. But Jesus doesn't just leave it at that because He, beginning in verse 21, He's going to take you and I directly into this application. He's going to begin to talk to us about the Old Testament. He's going to talk to us about what the Old Testament says about anger, about lust, about marriage, about oaths, about honesty, about retaliation. He's going to take us directly into this and he's going to show how he would never relax these commandments. As a matter of fact, he came to fulfill these commandments. He's going to help us understand how every one of them is useful and profitable in our lives to help us understand what God wants to accomplish through the new covenant. And that'll be a rich time for us in the coming weeks as we get a chance to look at each one of them one by one, asking the Lord to deepen our understanding of the usefulness of His entire Word. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. If you're here this morning and you are one of those people who has never measured yourself by the law of God, You've experienced the turmoil. You know the anxiety. You feel the darkness churning in your heart. You you grapple with the sense of shame and wanting to flee and hide and all of those things. You feel all of that, but you don't understand it. The law was given so that you could see yourself as a lawbreaker, so that you could understand where all of that shame and guilt comes from. But it was also given with a promise that if you see yourself as a sinner, that God is providing a way of salvation. He's providing a way for all of that guilt and shame to be washed away. And to do a work in you that will make you a new creature. And begin to mold in you the pattern of righteousness that the law talks about. Father, we're grateful, so thankful that you give us these precious scriptures. So needed in our lives. Because we have such a tendency to think of ourselves better than we ought to think. But Lord, we need your law. We want to see where deficiencies still lie. We want to see where we need to be trusting you, crying out to you to complete the work that you began in us. So give us a a richer understanding of it. Give us a commitment to it. 
in the coming weeks, even as we listen to the words of our Savior, enrich our understanding of the precious value of all your word. Help us to say with the psalmist, Oh, how we love your law. Let it be our meditation day and night. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.